And tonight, as we come to chapter 5, verse 5, we come to an element where it's talking about confession for sin and restitution. So we'll pick it up in verse 5. We read this. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel. When a man or a woman commits any sin that men commit in unfaithfulness against the Lord, that person is guilty. Then he shall confess the sin, and we can say, or she shall confess the sin which he has committed. He shall make restitution for his trespass in full, plus one-fifth of it, and give it to the one he has wronged. So here is some instruction concerning for the nation of Israel. Remember, they all were under the moral law, the Ten Commandments, to guide and govern them personally. Absolute truth. Then they're under religious law, how they could worship God, how they could come to God in worship through the animal sacrificial system, the tabernacle, central place of worship. And then they had God's law for civil law, how to treat one another as neighbors and how to handle things like kidnapping, murder, accidental death, and all those sorts of things that happen in the human experience. And with with that background, they have already made the covenant with God. So we just took a census of over 600,000 Israelite men of the age of 20, first conscription, ready to go to war. We just took the census of the Levites, a couple, 10,000, uh, to ready to go in the ministry service from age 30 to 50 to serve the Lord at the central place of worship in the tabernacle. So it's all in place. These people are going to do the worship stuff. These people camp here, 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 and they do the war stuff. But they got to function together. There are probably 2.5 million people total. And what God has given them right here, he's put in place, not just for their wilderness wandering for the next 39 years, but when they come into the promised land under Joshua and Caleb, when Joshua and Caleb step into eternity and the judges reign like Gideon and Samson and the rest of them, and then when the time of Saul comes to pass and the time of kings, David, and all those kings, the unified kingdom, then the divided kingdom, the no longer northern kingdom, 722 B.C., and then the southern kingdom till 586 B.C. during the Babylonian captivity, when they come back, with Ezra and Nehemiah and all those events, until Jesus Christ died on the cross and said, it is finished, and until he rose from the grave, this was the word of God in its fullest revelation for how to deal with sin in our lives personally, how they affect the people we love, our community, and how it affects us as a nation. This is it right here. Now, of course, Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and rose from the grave for our hope and justification, And he is the propitiation or the substitute for our sins. And when we confess our sins and receive Christ, we do find forgiveness and we are born again and we pass from death to life. And I know most of you, if not all of you, understand this theologically or doctrinally. But this is really important right now, as it always is for the body of Christ, to think about sin, confession, restitution. And for such a time as this, even for a nation to be thinking about sin, confession, restitution, and how to put ourselves under the blessings of God. Now, we can't make America as a whole do the right thing, but we wake up and look in the mirror and we can choose ourselves to do the right thing. And if enough people right now in Jesus' name who call Jesus Lord, wake up and do the right thing in the integrity of their heart, then we're bringing blessing upon the land for such a time as this. Don't forget that with Abraham, when God was going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah, and Lot, his nephew, was in the city, Abraham begged and pleaded with God to spare Sodom. He interceded for sinners in a, a very wicked, sinful people that he himself had rescued from Chedorlaomer and the kings from the north in a previous chapter. 
Abraham knew all about Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, he said, I'm not going to take one sandal strap from those guys. They're, they're bad people. I don't want to owe them anything. But Lot chose to live there. So he went to go rescue his nephew. And the angels of the Lord had said, should we hide from Abraham what we're going to do? And Abraham knew they were going to do, that they were coming to judge Sodom and Gomorrah for their sin rose before the Lord. And if you recall, Abraham pleaded. And remember, he said, if there's 50 people righteous, will you spare the city? And he said, yeah, I'll save it for 50. And then he went down the numbers, 45, 40, 30, 20. And he got all the way down to 10. He said, bear with me one more time. Now, this is Abraham, the father of faith, by which all of our faith is measured by. He was the friend of God. Don't forget, God called him his friend because he did not withhold his son, Isaac, his only son, in obedience to what God had for him in his covenant and what he promised him. And he said, for 10 people, I will spare this city. For 10 people, I will spare this city. So as we think about for us and our personal responsibilities with our sins and shortcomings, our confessions and our restitutions, we're not a lot of people here tonight. Obviously, we're a lot of people before the Lord and every life counts. But it all begins with us. It begins with me and it begins with us. If we want God to heal our land, if we want righteousness to reign and we want good things to happen for our children and our children's children for such a time as this, then each of us must accept the responsibility, what it says in Chronicles, that if my people who are called by my name will repent of their sins and their evil ways, then I will hear them and I will heal their land. It's not my responsibility to repent for any other pastor, just me. And it's not our responsibility as a church to repent for any other church. Calvary Chapel Coast Mesa is not my responsibility, nor is Refuge or Rick Warren and Saddleback. Esta iglesia is mis responsabilidad. This church is my responsibility, nuestra responsabilidad. This is our responsibility. So we're a family here tonight with some guests. So let's, let's talk. Let's, hablamos con papá ahora. Yeah, let's talk with dad right here in this house, transparently, about who we are with Jesus and where we are right now, because we're weighing the balances. Seriously, if you don't know it by now, and you've been in outer space, we're all being weighed in the balances right now. And when we wake up in a few weeks, I want to know that we did our part to project a better future for our children's children and for the completion of our journeys. Now, when a person sins, he or she with unfaithfulness. The first thing is we all know we're sinners. This is what we're up against with human government, all human governments. And the way sinners have to be governed is two ways. There's only two ways sinners can be governed. They can be governed by thoughts that they choose to govern them or by totalitarian authoritarian measures. They're either governed by the free marketplace of thoughts and the majority accepting those thoughts as rules and guidelines to the benefit of a society, or they're governed by force, like the Soviet Union was and communist China is right now. There's only two ways that men are governed. They're governed by the free marketplace of thoughts that they accept as good thoughts, godly thoughts that benefit a society and to be governed by God as much as they can be, or they're not to be governed by force. This is the challenge with being sinful people because all we like sheep have gone astray and we sin. We all sin individually. This is what works against us in our marriages. This is what works against us in our homes. Sin unchecked will just destroy a marriage and it'll be divorce. 
Sin unchecked will destroy your children and will break the line of godly children. And you'll perpetuate ungodliness from generation to generation. But sin in check with the Holy Spirit, sin refined by the Holy Spirit, will perpetuate a godly generation like Billy Graham's father to Billy Graham to Billy Graham's daughter to Billy Graham's granddaughter, Cassie, or excuse me, Sissy, and the rest. Like, that's the way it works. But the challenge of all government, individual government, a family's government, a community's government, a state's government, a country's government, is we're sinners. This is the challenge. And when there's great revival, what happens is the Holy Spirit falls upon sinners and convicts them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And there's mass repentance from the people, and the land gets healed. That's what happens. That's what gets happened. If you study the revivals of D.L. Moody and Charles Finney, and these were radical revivals, it was the preaching, and Jonathan Edwards for that matter, John Wesley as well. It's, it's profound. It's the Great Awakening and then the Second Great Awakening in our American history. And it was men and women on fire proclaiming the gospel and the Holy Spirit confirming that truth. And thus, people in large groups and large gatherings responded to that truth and they responded with repentance because the Holy Spirit comes, he convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And this is how you have revival and we need Revival. Revival is not in the hands of our governor or our assembly. Now, making laws, good or bad, or even the judges, the highest judges in California, they can reject the will of the people like they did with Prop 8 in 2008. They're going to stand before the Lord and give an account for that. Don't, don't you worry about that. They will. They will give an account for not honoring the will of the people of California. But that's not, that's their kuleana, as they say in Hawaii. That's their field. This is our field. Our field is the power of the Holy Spirit. Our field is the power of the word of God and the gospel. Our field is the stewardship of the gospel and the living out of the gospel and the declaration of the gospel. And to be, we can't expect people in government unless they're born again to be spirit filled. We can only expect sinful men. And if they're not governed by God, then they're sinful men not governed by God, governing other sinful men and some not as sinful people who are redeemed by the Lord. That's what you get with human government. But in God's economy, he makes it clear that righteousness is good for the city and righteousness exalts a nation and sin is a reproach to any people. So as we're waiting the balances, the entire planet right now in this crazy year of insanity, and I'm not afraid to call it that, normal people, are acting insane. And science and truth and reason are thrown out the window with people who have agendas and have convinced everybody the sky is falling. And it's insanity. And it's hard to watch. And actually, if you're like me, it makes you sick. Because it's demonic and it's diabolical. But that's what they are accountable for. We're accountable for repenting of sin, confessing sin, and making restitution however we can to the betterment of society. That's the role of the church, being salt and light. So, we can't expect ungodly people to be spirit-filled or have the baptism of the Holy Spirit upon what they do, but we can expect, in looking in the mirror as a woman of faith or a man of faith, to pray like Jesus said, pray 
that we would seek, knock, and ask, and how much more would the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask for him? We can pray to be profoundly spirit-filled men and women. We can pray to be a spirit-filled church. We can pray to be a humble church, a praying church, an interceding church, and a live church in the power of the Holy Spirit, and we can do our part. Now, we're not just going to do our part up until election day. We're going to do our part until the Lord comes back or we step into eternity. But some things are more time-sensitive than others. And we're, we're time-sensitive right now. This is a very time-sensitive time. You know, when the czar didn't take seriously what was going on with the Bolsheviks, he was goofing off and didn't take seriously what people were reporting for him, what was going on back in St. Petersburg with the Bolsheviks. And he didn't take it seriously. And by the time Nicholas II woke up and realized what was really going on, it was too late. And Lenin and Stalin and those goons came to power. And they destroyed that country. They caused a civil war that cost millions of people's lives. In the next 40 years, they killed 50 million innocent people. Some things are more time-sensitive than others. And this is very time-sensitive. So, when a man or a woman sins and commits an act of unfaithfulness, we need to think about if we're going to stand before the Lord tonight. We don't want to have anything. We want, we, every day we want to be right with the Lord, but we want to be right with the Lord right now. This is a night to be right with the Lord. I'm not asking you to stand up and give public confession, but I'm asking you, if the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin, righteousness, and judgment, that you, by faith and obedience to the Lord, respond to it as his child. Because I want to be part of the healing of this land. I want to be part of a better future for this planet, for my children and my children's children. And the more of us that are willing to be right with the Lord, the better it is for us. And that's what God promises. If my people who are called by my name will confess, I will hear and heal their land. We're all sinners. And in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus said, forgive us our debts as we forget our debtors. It's in a daily prayer. And you know, Paul the Apostle described this so well in Romans 7, the frustration. Oh, wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this? And it's tough. You look back over this last week, you said something, did something, or whatever, that just, you would, you just don't want to see that game film in, in, the, in, in the room. You just don't want to see it. But I'd say in most cases, most of you didn't wake up saying, I can't wait to say something I'm going to regret. I can't wait to do something I'm going to regret. Like, I think most of you, when you had bad moments, it just, it, it wasn't premeditated. It just something pushed your buttons and it went a certain way. And the Bible says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but spiritual forces in heavenly places trying to destroy us. As Peter said, your adversary, the devil, goes about like a roaring lion, seeking to may devour. And the more spirit-filled you are, the more committed you are to the Lord, the more consecrated you are to your calling, the more likely those lions are coming after you. So the issue with the sinful nature is to realize, of course, we're sinners. And this is the conflict that the church has right now because there's a lot of sin in the church. And I'm not speaking about WG. I'm talking about a lot of denominations where their leadership rejects the gospel. They reject the word of God. And they definitely reject calling sin, sin. Now, I'm not here to lecture you on that. You already know that. But this is a major problem that we have. Because people don't like to be, people don't like to be told sin is sin. People want to live in their sin because sin has a passion and pleasure for a season. And this is what is a challenge for us at times when we think about praying for other people. 
Sin looks good for a while. When someone's in an unhappy marriage and they get involved in an illicit relationship, it might be exciting. She might be prettier, nicer. He might be handsome, you know, more richer, whatever. But in the end, sin always, James chapter 1, brings forth death. Always. Spiritual death. It's conceived, it matures, it's birthed, and it brings forth death. Sin always brings forth death. It always deceives and it desensitizes till it just kills. And the hardest thing is watching someone train wreck their life and they don't get another chance. So it's so important for us in the context of normal everyday living, confessing Christ, is we realize, yeah, we have this sinful nature. And I'm not using it as an excuse, but I am aware of it. And we have to keep it in check. And we have to let the Lord examine us. David said, search me, O God, and try me and see if there be any evil way in me. And we have to have that spirit and that heart before the Lord that we're willing to be corrected and reproved by the Holy Spirit. We have to have it. Because if we don't, we'll harden our heart, we'll be deceived by sin, we'll do stupid things down the stretch, and we'll regret it on on our deathbed. I don't want that for you, and I sure don't want it for me. We have to keep our heart tender. And the way we keep it tender is to invite the Lord to know we're sinners, to invite the Lord to search us, and to receive correction, to receive correction as sinners. We do commit sin, and we try not to, but we do. And it does bring forth death, so it's so important to recognize it and to receive the reproof of the Holy Spirit or people that love us and say things that need to be said. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. And there are a lot of people perishing on their way to hell because they're getting kisses from enemies, And hearing what they want to hear, as the Bible says in the last day, men teaching doctrines tickling to their ears instead of what they need to hear. We're guilty. We're all guilty. The Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And Jesus on the cross is because you and I, us, body of Christ, are sinners. But he did that so we wouldn't be a slave to sin because whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And that we could go forward from that. And there's a very paradoxical thought here because it says in 1 John, if we say that we have no sin, the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, he, Jesus Christ, is faithful and just to forgive us from all uh, unrighteousness and sin. For we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That's very paradoxical, right? Because we're delivered from sin, but if we say we don't have sin, we deceive ourselves. So we have this deliverance positionally, It's taking place practically, hopefully, but we could never be deceived into thinking that we have no sin because we do make mistakes. We do say things we regret. We do do things we shouldn't do. And your best life can be wrecked like that in one day in a moment of folly and being vulnerable because remember what the devil said, what it says about the devil of Jesus, he departed until what? An opportune time. We have to be real with ourselves, real with the person in the mirror, and for such a time as this, we need to really take inventory and have it right. The second thing we see, and you know, we can't make other people repent, but we certainly, we can't make other people recognize their sins or be willing to say they're sinners, and they burn a lot of people at the stake in human history and do all kinds of horrible things to people who say sin is sin. That's church history. That's human history, and it's definitely European history. And there's nothing you can do about it except be faithful. Because Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my father. So it's the good confession that Jesus had before Pilate that we're told in the New Testament. Sin is sin. Don't ever let a society move you from believing what sin is. 
And what they've done with this new generation is convince them that so many things that are sin are not sin. They are sin. And they separate you from God. And Jesus died on the cross for those sins. And you can call it whatever you want to call it. But sin is sin. And let God be true and every man a liar. And the best thing we can do is speak the truth in love. In hopes of reaching people. And that the Holy Spirit will convict people that we love who are in sin. Not even acknowledging sin. And unwilling to repent of sin. Convict them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Those are the words of Jesus. Now, it says, when they sin, they shall confess the sin which they've committed. It would seem that confession is the easiest thing to do. Actually, it, it, it kind of is. And I mentioned this even in a study just a few weeks ago when speaking to one of my relatives. I said, you know, I have found that if you just say you're sorry, nine out of ten times, they'll get you out of jail. They'll get you out of trouble with people. Like you rip somebody off. Like, you know, like you just rip them off and this or that or you said a lie about them or whatever. But if you just come back and just, if you're a scoundrel and suddenly you're not a scoundrel and you say, hey, I'm really sorry I did that. I feel really bad. Please forgive me. They'll be like... Whoa, like I have found in the human experience, nine out of 10 times, if you say you're sorry and admit you're wrong, it will make things immediately better. It really will. Now, there's one in 10 that just can't, you know, if you've lived long enough, you know that one when you see it, there's not much you can do. It's just not going to, it's just not going to work. But as much as you can, it says in Romans, the peace be with all men. So confession is critical because that's when we agree with God. God, I agree with you. I handled this wrong. I totally was out of line. I, di- I didn't. Uh, you know, it says with some sickness in the body of Christ in James chapter five, it says if anyone, you know, is sick, they can call for the elders and the, and the confession. You talk about confessing your sins. You anoint them with oil, too. But if they have sin, they need to confess their sickness that's caused by sin. What did David say in the psalm? My bones are rotting within me until I confess my sins and made it right. So confession is critical. And just those words, I'm sorry, and we say this, you older people remember, of course, happy days. I just can never get on my mind, Fonzie could never say he was wrong. You know, and you can laugh at that because it's true. He could never say his wrong. He's like, I was ru-ru-ru. Like Fonzie was the coolest guy. He could never say he was wrong. I've met some Fonzies, male and female. I've seen them in the mirror, and I've met them in the church office more than once where they just refuse to accept responsibility for sinful behavior, sinful actions, and accept it, agree with God, and say they're sorry. We don't want to be those people. I don't think most of you are those people. But when good people go wrong down the stretch, it's usually because they didn't confess things when the Spirit was convicting, and they blame other people. Early on in ministry, I got pulled into many different marriage counseling situations. And I learned early on that you really, a marriage counseling session more often than not is a referee. It's really not like, it's, it's, it's two people generally, not always, but generally just attacking each other. And if you can even get agreement that someone did something wrong, it's yeah, but they did this. And yeah, but they did that. And it's deferring. And so confession is not, yeah, I was wrong, but they did this. That's not confession. That's excuses. And the world's full of excuses. We don't bring excuses to the throne of God when God's correcting us for bad attitudes, bad actions, and bad words. We bring confession and true repentance. Because it says in Acts chapter 3, so times of refreshing can come. Don't you want to be refreshed? It's amazing sometimes when people confess things and, and, and make them right, how much better they feel. Like David said, my bones rotted within me until I confessed. 
In the Old Testament, the story of King Saul, the first king of Israel, is a classic example of someone who could never say they were wrong, and it cost them everything. He was the first king of God's people. That's amazing. And God chose him. But he was told to wipe out the Amalekites. And he saw the treasure and the wealth of the Amalekites, and he, he kept it. And he, he, was, he came back to Israel from the south and routing the Amalekites. And Samuel the prophet came to him and said, what did, what did God say to you? Oh, I, I, did, I did. You're a servant of the Lord. I did what you told me to do. Really? Then why is that that I hear the goats, the sheep bleeding? It was really clear. None of the animals, everything. And, but there was wealth. It was wealth. Like, we just can't throw silver bars overboard. We can't just dump those stocks and let them go to money heaven. Like, I mean, I know those are bad guys, and they probably got that money legally, but like, you know, that's just good stock. Why are we getting rid of that, Sam? He said, and then you know what he said? The, pe- the people did it. First he said, I did what the Lord told me to do. Actually, you did not. And then, well, yeah, I know the sheep are bleeding and they're speaking, but the people did it. And for this reason, God rejected him as king. So the next time we find ourselves making excuses for sinful behavior and trying to blame someone else, we do really well to consider what Saul's excuses cost him. It cost him from being the anointed one. It says that from that day on, the spirit departed from Saul and moved to David, which brings us to how we should respond to sin. Because the confession, because when David sinned, of course, he he had any women he wanted, and he, he, he wanted Bathsheba, who was beautiful, and it was his buddy's wife, but he took her when his buddy was fighting wars, and he was at home at the time that kings go to war, and he had the relationship with her, and she got pregnant, and he tried to cover it up, and so he worked with Joab, and they had um, Uriah killed there at the battlefront in the heat of the battle, and David thought he got away with everything. So now he can take her as wife. She's pregnant with his child. That's a potential prince, and... Um, it all looks good. And then, of course, Nathan the prophet comes to him and says, oh, David, I got, I got to tell you this parable. And it involves sheep again, interestingly enough. There's two men, and they had sheep. And one was a really rich man. He had all these sheep, super wealthy. And the other man had one sheep that he just loved and treasured, and it was the, 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 the apple of his eye. And then a visitor came to the rich man's house, and the rich man took the sheep, the one sheep from his neighbor, and sacrificed that sheep for the meal. And David just blew a gasket because, of course, David was a shepherd and he took care of sheep. He knew sheep by name and they knew him because they remember he was a shepherd before he was a king. And said, who is the man? Whoever's this man, he's going to be put to death. And Nathan goes, thou art the man. You're the man. And, you know, David didn't say, oh, I did what the Lord told me to do. David didn't say, no, I'm not. I'm going to hang you because I don't like what you're saying. He didn't say that. He said, I have sinned. And then he wrote one of the most beautiful songs in human history, Psalm 51. There's a Maranatha song from the 70s, Creating Me a Clean Heart and Take Not Thy Holy Spirit from Me. That is a beautiful song. That song is Psalm 51. David said, I'm a sinner. I was brought forth in sin and iniquity. God, I confess my sin to you, all of it, and I... I pray you restore me in with me a clean heart and make it right. And God, God did. And all the consequences of that sin, because sin has ramifications, especially those kind of sins, he just accepted it as chastening from the Lord. He accepted it. He never made excuses for it. That's, see, 
Saul looked like the perfect politician and the perfect king for God's choice. David looked like the unlikely person to be the king. And Saul's life looked good from the outside, very religious. David's life looked very, you know, he acted like a madman. He, he did all kinds of crazy things. And, you know, what he did with Bathsheba and Uriah and all that. And yet David's the one who had a heart. God said, God said it, not me. Like we can have our opinions on what we think about any political person, any boss, any co-worker, any neighbor. We have an opinion. Well, God tells us about his opinion of David. He says he's a man after my own heart. So in the midst of his sin and his failures and how he responded to his sin with confession, that's where it just affirmed God's love for David and David's love for God that he received it. That's how we want to be. I don't think any of us are going to write a song like Psalm 51, but I think we can take comfort in Psalm 51 and we can confess our sins and we can recognize our shortcomings and our failures. And, and I would say even this, being specific. Because sometimes you say, like, yeah, I know I blew it. Like, that's a, a generic one. We once had a worship leader. I don't hold anything against him, so don't take us out of context. We had a worship leader in Virginia the first year of the church. And I was a young pastor. I was 30, and church was going really good. But then we had all these problems where I made the banker the pastor, and he took all the money, and we had IRS problems for years, and you didn't even want to know. But uh, in the midst of all this, there's a coalition of these men in leadership who were against me, and they're all from other Calvary chapels. They were supposed to help me do the church, and they tried to destroy the church and destroy me. They just didn't like me, you know, and it's easy to do, so I understand. But these other guys had to go. Actually, one of the guys had to go was in an adulterous relationship. He's our children's ministry director in an adulterous relationship with another woman and attacking me. for He called me Stalin. <laughs> yeah. He called me Stalin while he's sleeping with another woman as our children's ministry director. That's what I was going through in October 30 years ago, 33 years ago, 30 years ago. And um, I had rashes. I was just, oh, it was horrible. Like my body just broke out in rashes. It was terrible. All up my neck and everything it was the worst thing ever. And, um, but that worship leader... That worship leader abused his ministry. And he was still there, and I didn't want to remove him, but he was convinced I was the bad guy. And we had a Sunday where every song in the set was a song about repentance, and he's singing it to me. And I got up and I taught, and then I just said, you got, you got to go. And he went for a while. And then he called him up a, a month or two later. Now, he did the same thing in another Calvary Chapel. I didn't even know it. The Calvary Chapel that sent me, him, he did the same thing there. Four years later, the guy tells me, hey, I sent you that guy. That guy was trouble. So why'd you send him to me? With friends like you, who needs enemies, you know? That guy caused so much problems. But, you know, I'll never forget about this. The guy said he was sorry. And I let him back. But, you know, he did the same thing. And you know what the Lord showed me? Generic sorry doesn't work from a worship leader. It needs to be specific and deliberate. What is he sorry for? Because he's called to lead my people in worship, and he was singing songs at you. That's what he needs to be sorry for. He was abusing the ministry. It had nothing to do with worshiping me, what he did to you. So next time, before you restore him, get a full confession. Yes, sir. I will. Now, I've never been in that situation again, but I learned a lesson we don't need generic sorries. The world's full of generic sorries. Deliberate. I confess my sin. Honey, I'm sorry I said this. I'm sorry I did that. Neighbor, I'm sorry I did that. I, I'm really sorry. I shouldn't have done that. Like, that's the hard part. It's humbling. 
It's the easiest thing to do, but it's the hardest thing to do because it's so humbling to say you're sorry and you were wrong. And I speak as a man like all of you. It's hard to say you're wrong and you're sorry. It's hard to confess your sins and expose your dirty laundry. It's hard. It's very difficult. It's counterintuitive to everything we are as human beings because the devil said skin for skin, yea, that all that a man or woman has, they'll give to save their life. And we don't want to look bad. We'd rather just take down our Instagram than have something up there that makes us look bad. I appreciate men and women on the front lines right now taking heat for standing up for what's good. But the cancel culture and the woke mob is just like trying to make them, just attack them and attack them. If you need to say sorry, say you're sorry. If you don't, don't. Now, there's a third element to this. And it is to make restitution. Now, obviously... We're not under penance when we're making things right with the Lord. There's, we don't, like when I was a kid and I went to confessional being raised Catholic, and some of you can give me a witness on this one. Yeah. Like, you'd, you'd go to confession like, oh, Father, you know, I, I stole the baseball cards from 7-Eleven. My mom whooped me, and, uh, and I lied to the teacher, and, you know, I, yeah, I, just, I said I was going to the bathroom, and I played with the squirrels for 10 minutes or something. Like, you just, you, could, you confess stuff, you know, when you do that. And they say, well, okay, so... You're going to say 20 Our Fathers, and you're going to pray the rosary, and uh, you're going to pray the rosary for 10 minutes, and then everything's okay. So you, you do penance. Now, that really stuck with me for a long time, that kind of stuff. So it'd be like, okay, you know, like, Our Father in Heaven, that's, I know it by heart, because, I mean, I said it a lot when I was a naughty little boy. <laughs> and uh, I said it when I was in trouble and big surf, too. Our Father in Heaven, I'll be thy name. You know, like, it came in handy. Um, but you say X amount of Hail Marys and stuff like that, and it's called penance. It's an action that shows you're repentant. Now, the, uh, how it was exercised by the Catholic Church is not biblically sound, but the principle has some validity to it. Because when John the Baptist was preaching and said, hey, you guys, you're a brood of vipers, you need to repent, and they had a baptism of repentance. So what do they say? So what do we do? And he says, all right, you who steal, steal no more. You soldiers, be content with your wages. He gave them deliberate, specific instructions that would show penance and a true change of heart. Because instead of abusing the Jews, the Roman soldiers, and taking their money, they were going to just do their job and do it right. John the Baptist in three spots, there in Luke chapter 3, three different examples of what penance looked like for the people who got baptized by him in a baptism of confession and repentance. Jesus said to the woman caught in adultery, we studied her Tuesday night, go your way and sin no more. And so he said to her like, hey, we don't want this cycle of bad men, bad men, bad men, or adultery, 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 nor do I condemn you. So you're going to go your way and sin no more. And maybe she would have been motivated because these guys are going to pelt her with rocks. And maybe that, that little bit of hanging was enough to make her never go in that direction again. But there's something about restitution and the more how deep that restitution can be, the more impactful it might be to keep you from ever going in that direction again. So if you had a drinking problem and then you were driving drunk and you killed someone and you did seven years in jail, I know someone who did that. Yeah, I spoke with him one night at Calvary Chapel years ago. He kept saying he was sorry, sorry for his drinking, sorry to the woman that left him, sorry for this, sorry for that. And then he, he, killed, he killed a 17-year-old when he was drunk. And he went to jail for seven years. And that was kind of his testimony. He'd go out and tell people, don't drink and drive. And you can never get that person's life back. 
Now, if you're truly repentant and you've done the seven years and you come out, you do have a testimony. And he just said, you have no idea the grief and the sorrow and the guilt I feel over all this. And he doesn't drink. At least at that time, he, he didn't. There's, there's sorrow, there's repentance with sorrow of tears that leads to repentance. Godliness with sorrow is repentance. And you get that. I shared the story of cousin Jimmy and my sister Barbie, which is probably the best example I really can think of from my own life. But when my sister was living on the streets for years as a homeless person and stealing from people and doing drugs and all that stuff, cousin Jimmy, her one son, who wanted nothing to do with her, my dad, the colonel, had given Jimmy a couple silver bars, and these silver bars were worth about $1,000. Barbie and one of her drug friends broke into my dad's house and stole her son's silver bar when she was living on the streets doing drugs. And she cashed it in. Well, then years later, when she was going to rehab at the, what they call CRASH, it's an acronym, CRASH program in San Diego, it's a 12-step program. And, you know, it's always, 12-step's always about, like, making it right, make restitution if you can. One of the things she had to do was to make that right. When she confessed everything in the group, then they say, okay, this is what you need to do to make it right. You need to restore the money, the value of the silver bar to your son, Jimmy. At this time, Jimmy wouldn't even acknowledge his mom, wanted nothing to do with his mom. We once tried to adopt Jimmy. It's the only child we ever tried to adopt, me and Jennifer. And my sister wouldn't let us. But, so Jimmy wanted nothing to do with her. So Barbie got her first job at at, uh, Macy's during the Christmas season four years ago. Minimum wage, you know, she's a rehab person. She shows up with her rehab card, does the job for eight hours. It's, it's, it's embarrassing. And then, you know, she, she, see, how many, see how many hours she worked to make $900. And the first $900 had to go to pay back Jimmy for the silver bar. That's a restitution. Now, this says 20%, right? But it's, it's not the value because this is the law. And Jesus on the cross is more than 20%, Right? So you understand that. But the idea, the principle of the restitution is valuable. And it's, it has great value. When you make something right that was wrong and it cost you something, it's way less likely you're going to do the same thing again because you're learning the lesson. Think about Zacchaeus when Jesus walked by Zacchaeus there in the Gospel of Luke and he sees Zacchaeus, the crooked tax collector in the tree. He's like, hey, Zacchaeus, come on, I'm going to your house today. He's like, whoa. He runs home, makes his meal. He's like, why is the, why is the rabbi eating at Zacchaeus' house? Well, then they're eating and just the presence of Jesus and the grace and that grace. Zacchaeus knows he's a, he's a crook. He knows he's a con. He knows he's, he's, a, he's a traitor. He's, he's, he's a collaborator. I mean, what's worse than a collaborator? I mean, really? Seriously. Ask the Dutch from World War II. What are the French? What's worse than Vichy France? Those guys are collaborators. They're traitors. Zacchaeus was a traitor. He worked for the Romans. He stole from his own people for the Romans and then kept it for himself. He was hated. And what did he say when it was all somehow open before the Lord? Lord, I restore everything fourfold. He went to the law and he said, I'll make it all right. I'm, I'm He's pulling out his money. If you've ever seen like movie scenes, I always kind of like show the idea. Like he's pulling all these secret stashes of cash out. He's like total prepper. And he's going to give all the money back. See, that's the restitution idea. There's value in that. Because Zacchaeus says, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. How sorry are you? Why don't you pull out all that money you stole from everybody and redistribute it to the people you stole it from? Well, yeah, okay. And you're going to feel really good when you do that. My sister felt great when she gave Jimmy the money. And that was the beginning of Jimmy being restored to his mother. And now they're very close again. Not because she bought his affection back, but because that was a a, a sign to Jimmy that his mom 
was going in the right direction, and she was sincere in saying she's sorry. So we think about making restitution. I close with this thought. As we've thought about these things and talked about these things tonight, is there anyone or anybody or anything that the Lord has brought to your mind that you need to make restitution? You need to call them. You need to write a postcard. You send them an email. Say you're sorry. Maybe say I forgive you. Maybe you don't even need to say you're sorry. Maybe you just need to tell them I forgive you. Because if my people call by my name will repent, I will heal their land. And if we do our part to be right with God in sincerity and integrity of heart as best we can on this night, the 17th of October, we're bringing blessings upon our own life. We're bringing blessings on this church, on our family, and we're bringing blessings upon our nation and the entire planet. The planet is better when Christians are sincere and broken and spirit-filled before the Lord. It's a good thing for the planet. And I really want God to heal this nation. I don't want evil people to come to power and do what they said they're going to do. I don't want them to do it against us, against Israel, God's people, against all of our freedoms. I just, I prefer that they don't do that. And I really am encouraging us to make straight the crooked path, if we have it. And if there's something you and I can do to show the Lord that we are sincerely sorry for anything he's bringing to our mind, even maybe things in the past we've already been forgiven for, but there's something we can do. It's an honorable thing. We should do it. We should do it. There's something powerful about Barbie giving Jimmy the $900 for the silver bar that just did such a healing for her with the Lord, Jimmy's potential faith in the Lord, and the, the, the healing of their relationship. I don't want us to step into eternity not right. I want us to step into eternity totally right. And so I actually had planned to teach the Lord's blessing in chapter 6, the Lord bless you and keep you, but I'm quite certain this is what I'm called to teach tonight because I think the Lord says, if you really want the blessings, give, us the conf- give me the confession first. And then I'll give you the blessings. We like the blessing, like the Lord bless me song. We, we, the Lord bless thee song. We like that song. We stood and read the text last night, Tuesday night. I'm like, oh, I can't wait to teach this on Saturday. We're going to feel so good on Saturday. I'm going to get them to teach the Lord bless thee and keep thee. Talk about Pastor Chuck. And I was like, no, you're going to get them to talk about sin, confession, and rest, restoration. Oh, okay. So there it is. Why don't we stand and close tonight with the blessing? Chapter 6, verse 23 says this. This is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. This is the way you'll bless the church of Jesus Christ throughout all ages. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name, and we'll say the name is Jesus, the name of every other name by which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord. So they shall put my name on the children of Israel in all eternity, and I will bless them. Our God is a blessing God, and it's well for us to put ourselves in the place of blessings. Amen.